Welcome to Tashma, the podcast where you get to listen in on Hadar's Beit Midrash. I'm Rabbi Avi Killip. Although the topic of Hadar's fall lecture series, Post-Holocaust Theology and Ethics, was decided months ago, unfortunately, it became much more relevant in recent weeks as we think about Jewish responses to disaster and cruelty. Rav Shai Held begins this three-part exploration into reactions to the Shoah with The Death of God, exploring the thought of Rabbi Richard Rubinstein. Let's listen. I'd been planning to give a series of lectures on post-Holocaust theology this fall. And then, when the world went dark on October 7th, I felt I just couldn't do it. Nothing else but the situation in Israel seemed to matter. But after a few days passed, as I wrote, I realized that many of the experiences people were going through right now, feelings of abandonment and alienation and rage, were also at the heart of post-Holocaust theology. And so much of what it means to be Jewish is to be in conversation with those who came before us, to take some form of solace and comfort, at least, from their struggles with their pain and their questions. And so here we are, my attempting to present some lectures on theology and the Holocaust. I will add that given all that's been going on in these past few weeks, and all that is, God help us, likely to unfold in the coming weeks, these lectures are going to be somewhat rough drafts. I beg your forbearance, and for those of you who know me, you won't be surprised to hear me say this, it may very well be that I'll make another attempt at taking on this topic in the next couple of years, in which I will probably present things very differently. It goes without saying, I hope, that I will not be attempting to solve, as if that were really possible, the problem of God in the Shoah, or for that matter, of God in the problem of evil more generally. What I want to do instead is this. In each of the first two lectures, I will focus primarily, though not exclusively, on one particularly influential Jewish thinker, who explicitly grapples with what the Shoah means for Jewish religious thought. Tonight, I'll focus on Professor Richard Rubinstein and his insistence that we live in the time of the death of God. And next week, I'll explore the thought of Rabbi Eliezer Berkowitz and his idea that God's making space for human freedom means that God must allow evil, even horrific, unspeakable evil. I'm not honestly sure about the third lecture yet. Either we'll look at a third thinker Or more likely, I'll try to share some of my own perspectives on a few of the key themes and questions the Holocaust raises for Jewish life and thought. I feel like for a series of lectures like this, it's worth at least very briefly saying something about my relationship to the subject. Both of my parents were refugees from Europe. My parents were the age of many of my friends' grandparents. Both of my parents were refugees from Europe, my father from Poland, my mother from Lithuania, who left for Palestine before the war. Both were extremely proud to have fought in the Haganah, and in my father's case, also in the British Army during World War II. My parents each lost countless relatives in the Shoah, and their memory and the anger and the alienation and the fear that they carried from those years never really left them. To this day, I have very few relatives because the Nazis murdered them all. It's a little hard to explain this if this is not the context you grew up in, but I'll say that immense pride in Israel Israel, 
and unrelieved devastation over the Shoah utterly pervaded my childhood experience. To say the least, both my parents struggled with God. But my mother said something to me in her later years that has always struck me because it could have come right out of an Elie Wiesel novel. My mother was not given to introspection, was not particularly self-aware. But one day in the midst of a conversation about I don't remember what, she declared, we spoke in Hebrew, she declared, You know, I'm so angry that apparently I do believe. That line haunts me. Writing sometime around 1974, Rabbi Greenberg wrote the most famous sentence um, in all of post-Holocaust theology, and it was this. No statement, theological or otherwise, should be made that would not be credible in the presence of burning children. I'll read that again. No statement, theological or otherwise, should be made that would not be credible in the presence of burning children. That comment made a massive emotional impact on many thinkers, Jewish and Christian alike. And yet, as the Orthodox philosopher Michael Wieschegrad soon pointed out, Rabbi Greenberg went on to say an awful lot about theology and politics after the Shoah. And in light of that exchange, I wanna enter into these lectures with a kind of double awareness. On the one hand, Many of us feel a tremendously powerful urge to be silent in the face of the enormity. And yet, on the other hand, to be a Jew has traditionally meant, at least in part, to struggle with God. So I will try to say some things, but I will say them hesitantly and haltingly. Post-Holocaust theology is not really, and certainly not primarily, a chronological designation so much as a collective categorization of a group of thinkers, all of whom were wrestling with similar questions. Though, of course, as we'll see, they offered very different answers when they offered answers at all. And strikingly, the conversation of post-Holocaust theology went silent at some point. To some degree, I think, that happened as the Holocaust became more of a distant memory rather than a viscerally felt reality for many Jews. But that also happened, I would suggest, because to put it simply, the questions won. Holocaust theology ended because the questions won. And I wanna revisit that conversation in the hopes that we can revive some of those questions and maybe even some of those tentative answers. So with that, we turn to Richard Rubenstein. A little bit about his background. Rubenstein comes from a fairly assimilated Jewish family studies at the Hebrew Union College, and leaves for JTS, for the Jewish Theological Seminary, when Abraham Joshua Heschel does. He leaves the faculty of HUC and goes to JTS, and some rabbinical students go with him. Rubenstein is among them. He also does some learning in New York at some very traditional yeshivas. He's ordained by JTS in 1952 and does a PhD in religion at Harvard. That's kind of all you need to know for the moment for background. Rubenstein publishes his first book after Auschwitz in 1966. That book and its extremely provocative thesis, which I'll discuss in a moment, is widely regarded as having launched the whole conversation of, and the debates of what people call post-Holocaust theology. Rubenstein famously describes a perplexing encounter he had in 1961 with Dean Heinrich Gruber, of the Evangelical Church of East and West Berlin. And 
in many ways, that conversation creates the whole explosion of post-Holocaust Jewish theological thinking. On one level, Heinrich Gruber was a great man. He had been sent to Dachau for his opposition to Nazism. He was the only German who testified against Adolf Eichmann at his trial in Jerusalem in 1961. After the war, he had worked to provide housing for victims of the Nuremberg Laws. He worked to foster reconciliation between Germany and Israel, as well as between Christians and Jews on a much more intimate personal level. For his 70th birthday, he asked friends and admirers to help him build a forest in Israel, toward which they donated, Rubenstein appreciatively reports, well over 100,000 marks. And yet, what he said to Rubenstein that day was completely shattering to this young rabbi. Gruber affirmed the special covenant between God and Israel and believed that Israel was in fact God's chosen people. To this day, he insisted, the history of the Jews continues to be guided by God's special providential guidance. But it didn't this mean, Rubenstein asked, that the Nazi slaughter of the Jews was somehow God's will? That for God's own inscrutable reasons, God really wanted the Jewish people to be exterminated by Hitler? Gruber did not back down. Yes, the Germans had been, quote, the whip that God had used against God's own people. To be sure, he said, the Germans would be punished and were already being punished just as the Egyptians were for their cruelty. But the fact remained that God had used them to enact God's will. Rubenstein reports that the time limitations prevented him from asking Gruber what sin the Jews had committed, what sin they could have possibly committed that merited such punishment. But he had no doubt about what Gruber would have said, or at least thought. The Jews had been slaughtered for killing Christ. It's worth noting, if only in passing, that after Rubenstein published his account of that meeting, Gruber denied having said what Rubenstein had attributed to him. But in any case, the views Rubenstein attributed to Gruber were no doubt held by many Christian thinkers and leaders. Yet for Rubenstein, the challenge went even deeper. As he wrote, I'm going to quote for a minute, there was little Gruber had said about Jewish misfortune that had not been spoken by the prophets and rabbis of the past. In other words, he recognized a kind of ugly reflection of Jewish theology itself in this Christian theology of Jewish suffering as a punishment. Whenever Israel experienced radical communal misfortune, Rubenstein maintained, her traditional religious teachers always interpreted the event as divine punishment. So a traditional Jewish theology, he thought, would have to say the same thing when faced with Auschwitz. God was punishing us for our sins. Jews and Christians, in other words, might disagree vehemently about what the sin was for which God was punishing the Jews. But that God was punishing the Jews for something, that was entailed, Rubenstein insisted, by believing in the biblical God of history. The encounter with Gruber, as I've mentioned, was devastating for Rubenstein. As he put it, quote, the interview pushed me to a theological point of no return. If I truly believed in God as the omnipotent author of the historical drama and in Israel as his chosen people, I had no choice but to accept Gruber's conclusion that Hitler unwittingly acted as God's agent in committing six million Jews to slaughter. I could not believe in such a God, nor could I believe in Israel as the chosen people of God after Auschwitz. 
Interpreters and critics have often misunderstood Rubenstein's main point. They have argued that what made Rubenstein lose faith in the biblical God was the classical problem of evil. How could an all-good and all-powerful God have permitted radical evil? But that is not what Rubenstein says. In fact, he explicitly says that this is not what so troubled him. Instead, what vexed Rubenstein was what believing in the God of history seemed to him to entail, namely that God had been actively involved in sending six million Jews and one and a half million Jewish children to their dehumanizing death. In other words, it's the God of history that drives Rubenstein to the breaking point or his understanding thereof. Perhaps, as Rubenstein often says, it was punishment. God had used Hitler like God had once used Nebuchadnezzar as the rod of God's anger. Or perhaps, as Rubenstein sometimes concedes, it was something else, some other divine plan which made the Holocaust necessary. But either way, the bottom line for Rubenstein was that it is impossible to affirm the existence of the biblical God of covenant and election without also affirming some sort of purposeful divine involvement in Auschwitz. You cannot have the biblical God in the biblical covenant, he says, without having God having a role at Auschwitz. It is this that Rubenstein found so offensive and so intolerable. It is this, he says, that led him to abandon his faith in what he understood as the traditional God. So I want to leave Rubenstein behind for a minute to note that many Jews, including great rabbinic figures both during and after the war, interpreted the Shoah just as Rubenstein feared. Let's very, very briefly consider too. I won't say much about their broader theologies and interpretations of Jewish history, but instead I'm mainly going to limit myself to their claims about the Shoah as punishment. Rabbi Hanan Wasserman. Lithuanian Talmud scholar on Rosh Yeshiva, more generally a prominent communal leader, student in Volozhin and tells two of the most illustrious East European Yeshivot, Rosh Yeshiva in Baranovich in what is now Belarus, which under his leadership became one of the most famous Yeshivot in Eastern Europe. He's one of the leaders of Aguda Israel, together with, if these names mean something to you, his brother-in-law, Reb Chaim Ozer Grzynski, and his mentor, Rabbi Yisrael Meger Kagan, known as the Chafetz Chaim. Rabbi Wasserman was widely regarded as the Chafetz Chaim's spiritual successor. He was murdered in Lithuania in 1941. Wasserman was a fierce anti-Zionist. He described Zionism as Elil Chadash Shegamhu Avodazara, a newfangled idol that is also idolatry. Secular Zionists, he wrote, are agents of Satan. Religious Zionists are to be condemned for joining hands with anti-religious sinners. And, this is a crucial forerunner for what will soon come, Arab attacks on Jews in Israel are a divine punishment. Turning to the Shoah in particular, in 1938, Wasserman publishes Ikfasa de Meshicha, in Yiddish, the onset of the Messiah. I'd like to focus on one passage in particular, There are two primary false gods whom Jews serve and whom they offer sacrifice to, socialism and nationalism. The Torah of modern nationalism consists of the words, we will be as the nations. To be a Jew, it is enough to be nationally Zionist-minded. One needs no more, just to pay a shekel and sing Hatikva. This absolves one from all the commandments of the Torah. It is quite clear that such a system, according to the Torah, 
is idolatry. The hearts and minds of the whole of Jewish youth are darkened by these two false religions. Each false religion has an entire headquarters of false prophets in the form of writers and speakers who are committed to their work. A miracle has occurred. In heaven, these two false religions have been combined into one, a terrible stick of wrath to punish Jews murderously in all corners of the land, national socialism. That is the marriage of nationalism and socialism. These two idols has been created from the mix. The same impurities that we worshipped are now punishing us. And your backslidings shall reprove you. Wasserman does not just argue that the Holocaust is divine punishment. He argues that it is punishment of midah keneged midah, of measure for measure. Jews worship nationalism and socialism. And even though nationalism and socialism don't go together, God stirs up this monster called nationalist socialism, and that monster consumes the Jews. In a similar vein, Wasserman follows other ultra-Orthodox thinkers who insist that the separation between Israel and the nations must be maintained. God is, as we say each week at Havdalah, Hamavdil bin Yisrael la'amim, the one who separates between the Jews and the other nations. When Jews get too close to non-Jews, non-Jews drive them away. The closer they get to the non-Jews, the more ferocious the non-Jewish repulsion of the Jews becomes. Now keep in mind that Wasserman dies in 1941. He is not writing with anything like full knowledge of what the Nazis will eventually unleash on the Jews. I don't mean to suggest that he'd have changed tack. I don't think we could ever know that. I just think it's worth pointing out when he's writing. Now let's take another example of this. This one post-Holocaust. Rabbi Yoel Yolish Teitelbaum, the founder of Satmar Hasidism. He was a fierce opponent of modernity in general, and as we'll see, of Zionism in particular. I should say, since we're talking about a historically important figure, his behavior during World War II has been the source of enormous controversy, and I'll just take a one-minute digression to explain what that's about. First, he ignored the threats to the Jews of Transylvania and failed to engage in the preparation of rescue and aid plans. Second, as the situation of Hungarian Jews became dangerous, Teitelbaum equipped himself and his closest circle with certificates or visas that would facilitate their escape to Palestine or the U.S. All the while, he thwarted attempts at cooperation between the heads of ultra-Orthodox communities and the Zionist organizations, which could have helped the rest of the Jewish community he left behind escape. Third, his daughter settled in Jerusalem while he openly called on his followers to avoid immigrating there. And fourth, and this is the subject of endless kind of historical anger and debate, despite his demonization of Zionism, Teitelbaum agreed to be put on Kastner's train, which was organized by Zionists. He never acknowledged having been saved by Zionists, and his anti-Zionist rhetoric never cooled. He was an enormously influential Haredi figure. Despite living in New York, he becomes the president of the anti-Zionist Edah Haredit in Jerusalem, also eventually chairman of the Edah Haredit rabbinical court there. Now, to say something very, very briefly, there are two kinds of orthodox anti-Zionism in modernity. There is, I'm going to call it moderate orthodox anti-Zionism that says, you can't cooperate with secular, often anti-religious Jews. That position was more common among Misnagdic rabbis. 
rabbis not in the Hasidic world. The second, more extreme Orthodox anti-Zionism said, even if every Zionist kept all 613 mitzvot, Zionism would still constitute an unconscionable rebellion against God. Teitelbaum was the most consistent and insistent voice of position number two. Zionism, he said, was a demonic usurpation of a prerogative that belongs exclusively to God. God is the redeemer, God is the savior, and we are not. It is that that Zionism forgot, and that makes it an abomination. Here again, I want to focus only on one passage. There is a famous Talmudic passage that I, I brought for you here from Masechet Tubot, Tractate Tubot, that says that, among other things, the Jewish people took a vow never to return to the land Kichoma or Bichoma as a wall, seemingly by force, seemingly um, as a huge collective, not totally clear what it originally meant. And for Teitelbaum, that becomes kind of the heart, this Agadah becomes the heart of Jewish theology. Vayoel Moshe introduction. Currently in our time, there is no need to search out the sin that brought you trouble upon us because it's clear and explicit in the words of our sages, who told us in an explanation they learned from the biblical verses, that because of the violation of the oaths not to go up altogether as if surrounded by a wall, and not to hasten the end, I, God, will permit your flesh to be prey like that of the gazelles and the hinds of the field. And because of our many sins, it was in fact so. The heretics made all kinds of efforts to violate these oaths, to go up altogether as if surrounded by a wall, and to take sovereignty and freedom on their own before it was time, which is what hastening the end means. And they lured the hearts of most of the Jewish people with their impure idea. I want us to be clear about something. Some of you, I'm guessing, have just heard about the positions taken by Rabbi Wasserman and Teitelbaum and find those views, let me put it gently, distasteful. But I want to be clear just so we understand here. There is nothing in these positions that is illogical. That is, they are not self-contradictory and thus cannot be refuted on their own terms. If we reject them, and I think we should, it is because we find them morally repugnant and theologically abhorrent, right? The picture of who God would be and of God's own ethics would be intolerable to us. But if you start with certain theological assumptions, that's where you get. So now, in light of this, in light of seeing that there were Jews who did exactly what Rubinstein feared and which he considered an obscenity, let's return to Rubinstein himself. Rubinstein was accused by some of his early critics of being an atheist. After all, he had said, we live in the time of the death of God. And this is the end of that first quote. I mean that the thread uniting God and man, heaven and earth has been broken. We stand in a cold, silent, unfeeling cosmos, unaided by any power beyond our resources. After Auschwitz, he asked, what else can a Jew say about God? Or again, Rubinstein declares that in truth, quote, the divine human encounter is totally non-existent. I should note that Rubinstein insists that he is ultimately talking about human culture rather than about ontology, meaning he is not, so he says, talking about how the universe is and what does and doesn't exist. He's talking about what it's possible for a person to believe or for a Jew to believe in this day and age. I believe that radical theology errs in its assertion that God is dead. Such an assertion exceeds human knowledge. The 
statement God is dead is only significant in what it reveals about those who make it. It imparts information concerning what the speaker believes about God. It reveals nothing about God. I should like to suggest that, since this information has strictly phenomenological import, we ought to formulate it from the viewpoint of the observer. It is, in other words, more precise to assert that we live in the time of the death of God than to declare God is dead. The death of God is a cultural fact. We shall never know whether it is more than that. So again, on the one hand, with one degree of nuance or another, we find Rubenstein insisting that we live in the time of the death of God. And yet, on the other hand, Rubenstein maintains that he does believe in some sort of God. He wants to stress divine imminence over against divine transcendence. Rubenstein says he believes in, quote, the God who is the source and ground of being, unquote. Inspired, he says, by Gershom Sholem's scholarship on the Ari, Rabbi Isaac Luria, Rubenstein is drawn to his own very idiosyncratic understanding of Jewish mysticism. As he writes, as ground and source of all existence, God is holy nothingness, capital H, capital N. Omnipotent nothingness, he frequently writes, is the true Lord of all creation. I leave it to you to decide whether you think those formulations actually mean something. They are obviously somewhat opaque. But Rubenstein insists that when he says that God is nothingness, he does not mean that God is nothing. To speak of God as the holy nothingness is not to suggest that he is a void. On the contrary, he is an indivisible plenum so rich that all existence derives from his very essence. God is nothing, is not absence of being, but superfluity of being. In terms that are jarring, considering that he understands himself to be writing as a Jewish theologian, Rubenstein advocates for what he labels, quote, nature paganism. And he goes so far as to interpret Zionism as tied to, quote, a return to the archaic earth religion of ancient Palestine. The earth's fruitfulness, its vicissitudes, and its engendering power, he says, will once again become central spiritual realities of Jewish life, at least in Israel. Now, I want to speak very personally for a minute. As a pastor and a person who respects other people's spiritual searches, I have sympathy for what Rubenstein tries to do. He can't believe in any version of the omni-god, and certainly not in the god of history, so he finds an alternative he feels he can see as divine. But as a philosopher, theologian, and an interpreter of the Jewish tradition, on the other hand, I have to admit that this talk about God as ground of being does basically no effective work for me. The truth is that the best intentions of people who invoke this term notwithstanding, I'm not convinced that the term actually means anything. I know that there are some very serious thinkers who disagree with me about that. More fundamentally, and I will say a lot right now that I would need a lot more time to fully explicate, I want to suggest four criteria for something to be an authentic Jewish theology. And I know that the word authentic is very, very loaded. Okay. First, a recognizably Jewish God is a commanding God. Second, a recognizably Jewish God has to be to some extent a personal God. I have to be able to address God as you. Third, that any God that does not have will and consciousness is actually lower in the order of being than we are and is thus not worthy of our worship. And fourth, any God who is not bound up with moral goodness 
is both un-Jewish and ultimately odios, that is irrelevant, especially after the Holocaust. On this scale, which I did not design for the purpose of this lecture, on this scale, Rubinstein's God, omnipotent nothing, is 0 for 4. Of course, now, and here's the point I want to emphasize, none of this answers the question of whether a commanding God, a personal God, a God with will and consciousness, a God bound up with moral goodness, is believable after the Shoah. For the moment, at least, I am offering a critique of Rubenstein's alternative, not an argument for the traditional God. In other words, we might say there are two questions about the way people talk about God. Is it Jewish and is it believable? The answer might be yes to the former, but no to the latter. And it might be actually no to the former and yes to the latter. So is Rubenstein an atheist, as some of his critics charged? In thinking about a question like this, I find it really helpful to go to a passage from the contemporary philosopher Merold Westfall, who is just an incredibly lucid writer, and he says this very simple thing. Atheism could be defined in terms of negative answers to either of the following quite different questions. One, is there anything corresponding to the theistic notion of a personal creator? Two, is there anything that deserves to be called God? And then if you look at the Westfall passage, you'll see he then tries to analyze Spinoza as a test case. I leave that for your own reading pleasure. On the first definition, is there anything corresponding to the theistic notion of a personal creator? Rubenstein is obviously, by that definition, an atheist. On the second definition, is there anything that deserves to be called God? He is most definitely not. And Ultimately, when people throw around terms like atheism or even paganism, for that matter, which I'll come back to, it helps to have some definition of what we're talking about. What do we mean when we use a term like that? I leave it to you to decide which of the two definitions Westfall prefers you find most helpful and thus which answer you would reach. From what I've already said, my own position is probably clear. As a pastor and fellow seeker, I'd go with definition two. As a philosopher, I'd much rather be inclined to definition one. But leave the question of atheism and theism to the side for a minute. How convincing are Rubenstein's arguments? What are the key weaknesses in the religious vision he presents? And here I hope that presenting this will sort of begin to open up some of the big questions that all post-Holocaust thinkers are forced to reckon with. First, Rubinstein obviously wants to reflect theologically on the events of the 20th century. He wants to think about how history affects theology. But some of his critics have suggested that his efforts fall short because he focuses almost exclusively on one event in Jewish history, admittedly an unfathomably horrific one. Why, they wonder, does Rubinstein focus so intensely on the Holocaust but not attribute theological weight to the birth of the state of Israel? If the Holocaust threatens to destroy faith, they wonder, might the rebirth of the state not open the door to restoring it? As Stephen Katz has put it, logic and conceptual adequacy require that if in our discussion of the relation of God and history, we want to give theological weight to the Holocaust, then we must also be willing to attribute theological significance to the state of Israel. At this point, I'm just making a kind of conceptual, conceptual point that if you want to embrace the importance of massive cataclysmic event A, you have to say something useful about massive cataclysmic event B, or, you know, era-making point B. 
To put this differently, for many Jews, the 20th century was not a theological refutation of God, but rather theologically dizzying. The Shoah seemed to disconfirm so much of what was precious in Jewish theology. Yet for many, especially for an older generation, the rebirth of Israel seemed to confirm that there was something unique about this people. Jewish history in the 20th century was thus far more ambiguous and elusive than Rubenstein suggests, or so his critics maintain. Indeed, the very survival of the Jewish people seemed and seems to many, Jews and Christians alike, I should say, to be miraculous, whatever you think that word means. If ever there was a word in need of better definition in contemporary usage, it's that, miracle. Okay, so that's critique number one. I honestly will say I'm not completely sure what I think of that critique. I think it's probably somewhat fair, but also overstated. I can, I can elaborate that in the, later if people like. Two. Why does the Holocaust in particular shatter Rubenstein's faith? Was there something unique about it that rendered belief in God impossible for him? Was there something that was true about the Holocaust that was not true, say, about the destruction of the First and Second Temples, the Crusades, or the expulsion from Spain in 1492? There are, we could argue, two dimensions to be considered here. A historical question what, if anything, makes the Holocaust a unique event in Jewish, or for that matter, in human history? And two, a theological question. Does historical uniqueness, if it exists, have any theological implications, and if so, why? I mean, you could argue that the Holocaust is a unique event in human history or in Jewish history, but theologically, it's just like all the other catastrophes that have befallen us, that have befallen us, and sadly, there are many. I suspect... That for many of us, though, that question of uniqueness is actually the wrong question, despite how many philosophers turn to it. The real answer here for many people, I think, is actually not about, and certainly not only about the event itself, but about the moment in history in which it took place. In pre-modern times, there were simply fewer available worldviews. In modern times, secularity was and is much more of a live option. And not surprisingly, in their anguish, many Jews adopted it. Let me explain what I mean just a little bit more, um, in a slightly more developed way. What distinguishes our time from biblical times is not the questions. The psalmists who wrote some of the angriest lament psalms had many burning, devastating questions to God and about God. What distinguishes our time from biblical times is not the questions, but the range of available answers. To the question, why did God remain silent? Modernity offers a unique possible response, one that was seductive to many people. Maybe there's just no one out there. In other words, I don't think it's what happened so much as when it happened. I, don't, I obviously don't mean to play down the enormity of what happened, but I think what makes this such a moment of rupture in faith for Rubenstein and those like him is when it actually begins to happen. Third, a conscious and active embrace of paganism as a form of Jewish theology strikes me as, well, a bridge too far for Jewish thought. It is, to my mind anyway, neither Jewish nor interesting. What do I mean by that? And I, let me just actually say here, there are people who want to reclaim, quote unquote, paganism for Judaism. Some of them are even my friends. I believe that it's a dead end, and honestly, I think it is a too dramatic an abandonment of the heart of what the Bible is about and for. 
To pose the question more abstractly, how far can reinterpreting the terms of a tradition go before the tradition is unrecognizable, before it is simply something else? Sometimes I think of that as primarily a question of temperament. Other times I think we should develop criteria for responding, but that's ultimately a topic for another day. On the question of paganism, on this one, I think I do agree with Stephen Katz's critique. In the light of the Shoah, the idea that Jews should embrace paganism is just plain weird. As Katz writes, quote, was it not precisely a mystical pagan naturalism that Nazism extolled? Was it not in the name of the pagan deities of primal origins that Europe was enjoined to shed the yoke of the Jewish God and thus liberate itself to do all that had heretofore been forbidden? Rather than embracing paganism and nature religion, Jews should be doubly suspicious of it. To quote Katz again, after Auschwitz, is it not time to be afraid of naturalism and paganism and skeptical in the extreme about the purported health-restoring, life-authenticating, creative, organic, and salvific qualities claimed for them? I should note, if only in passing, that Rubinstein denied that Nazism should be understood as a form of paganism. Greek paganism, he argued, respected the limits of human power. Nazism, if anything, was not paganism, but a kind of, quote, Judeo-Christian heresy. In any case, if we are going to have this conversation, once again, clarity about definitions would be helpful. One way to move the conversation forward would be to develop a coherent working understanding of what paganism is, and for that matter, what traditional Jewish theism is. I don't think Rubenstein has done anything even remotely like that. I'll mention also that the idea that Zionism is fundamentally pagan is extremely odd. Katz's critics dismiss it rightly, I think, as, quote, sheer mythography, the making of myth to kind of conform to his old, own worldview. Fourth, Rubinstein's world seems almost totally devoid of hope. As he himself puts it, quote, the world of the death of God is a world devoid of hope and illusion. The philosopher Michael Morgan hopefully describes the world as Rubinstein sees it. We have an earthly existence that is purposeless and without order, existential in its brute givenness, and in our sense of despair, anxiety, and isolation as we face it. This is, Morgan says, the home of resignation and not hope, of realism, of threat, and of worry. I will just ask, just because of time constraints and not develop this, can there be a Judaism without hope? Can there be a Judaism after the declaration that Rubenstein makes, death is the only Messiah? Again, here, I am not, I want to be clear what I am and I'm not doing. I am not offering an argument for hope, so much as asking what remains of Judaism when all hope is gone. And I should add a related note. Rubenstein repeatedly asserts that the universe is absurd. But is that obviously so? And does Auschwitz make it obviously so? I have no doubt that Rubenstein perceived and experienced the world that way, but why should his perceptions and experiences be privileged over anyone else's? Why universalize our own perceptions? That is kind of the ultimate epistemological mistake, one that endless thinkers are, are seduced by. If Rubenstein wants others to share his view of life as absurd, he has to make some sort of argument for it, I think, and not just state it. Whereas to him, I think it feels so self-evident at a certain point that he just makes a declaration. Rubenstein consistently speaks of the Jewish tradition as though it were a monolith. And I think that's because, not that he doesn't know any better, 
but because ultimately when you are making a polemical point, you know, it reminds me of a great quote from Nietzsche, in a time of emergency, it is necessary to philosophize with a hammer. I personally think that what makes Rubinstein so powerful to read is that he philosophizes with a hammer, which means that you can find, as I've been suggesting, some holes and some problems in the worldview that he's articulating. But I'm not sure that was his project. I'll explain more about that in a minute. But I do think it's fair to say, and I'm going to talk about this more in the third lecture, that Rubenstein flattens out at times the heterogeneous voices found in the Jewish tradition, the long tradition of protest against God, for example, or the Bavli, the Babylonian Talmud's radical claim that suffering is not a consequence of punishment. Rubenstein elides texts like this or dismisses them as marginal, I think because he has a larger point and a larger claim he wants to make. I will also add that when we speak about the Jewish tradition, I've always been somewhat mystified that to the best of my knowledge, Rubenstein never really considers Maimonides, hardly a marginal figure, who had long ago abandoned the God of history, even if he did so in esoteric terms, meaning that if Rubenstein had wanted to make a more traditional argument about abandoning the God of history, he could have appealed to the guy, guy for the perplexed. And why he doesn't do that is actually really not clear to me. I don't know whether it's because Maimonides' God is totally transcendent, whereas his God is totally imminent, but it's like an interesting puzzle about this incredibly interesting thinker's body of work. That move in Maimonides, by the way, is a major piece of why David Hartman, for example, was so drawn to Maimonides, right? Because David Hartman wanted to believe in a personal God, which is different than Rubenstein, but a personal God who was not the God of history. My point is that the idea that before Auschwitz, the tradition spoke with one voice and that it would be unavoidable to say that if one affirmed the traditional God, one would have to say that God is somehow the author of what happened at Auschwitz I'm just not sure that's quite right. I think Rubenstein has a lot to stand on, as you know, let's say from the Musaf liturgy, because of our sins, we were exiled from our land. He has a lot to stand on. And yet I wonder whether some of the multivocality of the Jewish tradition is lost in this philosophizing with the hammer. And that leads me to a sub-observation, um, if you will. I don't think that's a word, but if you want to reimagine Jewish theology, if you want to reimagine it at all, let alone if you want to reimagine it in the radical ways that Professor Rubenstein advocated, you have to rework the tradition, speak to and through its sources. And Rubenstein doesn't do that. Maybe he doesn't want to. I'm not sure. I'll quote Zach Braderman. Rubenstein, quote, never possessed the requisite textual familiarity and hermeneutical tools with which to become a truly strong misreader of Jewish tradition. I don't want to claim anything about his textual familiarity. I just think maybe that wasn't his project. Braderman, though, helpfully cites Harold Bloom, quote, the mighty dead return, but they return in our colors and speaking in our voices. I want to read that again. The mighty dead return, but they return in our colors and speaking in our voices. To which Braderman then adds, even Rubenstein's most sympathetic reader must acknowledge that the dead never managed to speak in Rubenstein's own voice. Now, the question of why that is, though, I'm not sure Braderman is giving enough credit for. That is to say, 
Rubinstein wants Jews to confront the reality of discontinuity in this moment. And discontinuity to him, I think, I mean, I can only surmise this, meant not playing the game, if you will, of Jewish theology the way it had traditionally been done. A useful contrast would be someone like Emil Fackenheim, for whom it's really important that continuity and discontinuity remain in a dialectic and what he calls the midrashic framework. The framework of reinterpreting texts has to be central to the project. An example of what I mean, I disagree with Art Green on many, many things, but he's a good example of someone who knows how to make the tradition, or at least parts of it, speak in his voice. You have a much richer engagement with Jewish sources. It reminds me, by the way, I don't know what to make of this. Michael Morgan, one of the really, I think, important scholars of the Holocaust in philosophy in general, and in Jewish philosophy in particular, actually suggests that one way to make sense of the first edition of After Auschwitz is really to see it as a set of essays that are rooted in the 1960s. They are more personal than Jewish theologians tended to be. They are more descriptive of personal experiences than Jewish theologians tended to offer. They are very much, he says, a, a product. I don't think this is a judgment, good or bad, but a product of the era in which he's writing. So where have we come? Rubinstein is, I want to be clear, I think, a thinker of great courage. Before almost anyone else, he was willing to, and he insisted upon, even if it sometimes took doing it with a hammer, to confront the Holocaust in theological terms. The fierce reactions he elicited suggest just how raw a nerve he had pressed. That is to say, when you read the initial responses to Rubinstein, you see you know, you, you, can, you can almost feel the wound that he's pressing for many of these Jewish thinkers. But we've also counter, encountered a thinker, I think, who is so provocative that the provocations sometimes are not sufficiently nuanced. And again, he might have defended himself by saying nuance was not a luxury I could afford when I wanted Jews to start wrestling with theology and the ways that it had broken. Rubinstein, I think, leaves us with a lot of pieces to try to pick up. Auschwitz, for Rubinstein, compels us to abandon some pretty normative and central concepts in Jewish experience. Covenant, redemption, providence, the entire vocabulary of a religion of history, of a god of history. Whether and why that is or isn't so, and how other thinkers responded to him, and make no mistake, any Jewish thinker writing in the West is engaged in a conversation with Rubinstein, right? You, you simply could not be writing. That's how kind of seminal a figure he was. You could not write without engaging with him. Whether and why he's right or whether and why one might in this day and age think that this is an, or isn't so, that is to say that we have to abandon notions of covenant and redemption and providence and history, etc. I hope to reflect upon, again, tentatively and haltingly in the coming lecture. In other words, I've suggested that at least from my perspective, Rubinstein's breaks with the past are too great for what he offers to be a coherent or sustainable Jewish theology. What he leaves us with is a series of extremely explosive challenges that I'm not sure we're entitled to shy away from, but I haven't yet offered any alternatives. I hope to begin to do that in the coming weeks. I think that there is another problem 
that animates Rubenstein, that leads him to want to abandon the God of history. And it is not a theological problem. It is an ethical problem. It is that he thinks that the idea of a God of history leads Jews and Christians into essentially what becomes a dance, a death dance, right? Jews end up believing that they are being punished for unfaithfulness and Christians end up saying, yes, you are being punished for unfaithfulness, but not the unfaithfulness you think you're being punished for. And there is a way in which you cannot understand Rubenstein, I think, without having a sense of the deep solidarity with the Jewish people he feels. He feels, whether he's right or wrong about this is obviously a matter for discussion, but he feels that it is dangerous for Jews and Christians to hold on to the God of history because it will perpetuate the ugliest sides of human rivalry. And this is where a whole dimension of Rubenstein's thought I haven't even touched on for reasons of, of time and space. This is where his interest in psychoanalysis is really important about the impulse to violence and, and the edible complex, all, all that kind of that kind of stuff. There's the theological reason for the abandonment of God. And there's also the what I'll call the Jewish Christian rivalry reason for abandoning the God of history. Our producers for this episode are Sam Greenberg and Jeremy Tabak. Thank you to Nadav Remez for editing this episode. I'm your host, Rabbi Avi Killip. It's been a pleasure to learn with you.